Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 345th episode of Awards Chatter. Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a revered Scottish character actor of the stage and screen who has worked with everyone from Laurence Olivier to Cousin Greg, and whose career of more than a half century has been recognized with Olivier, Emmy, and Golden Globe Awards. His standout work in the theater has included 1984's Rat in the Skull, for which he won his first Olivier, 1988's Titus Andronicus, for which he won his second, and 1990's King Lear, all in London, plus five turns on Broadway, most recently as LBJ in 2019's The Great Society, for which he is sure to be Tony-nominated if the 2019-2020 Tony nominations ever happen. On film, he stood out in 1986's Manhunter, 1995's Braveheart, 1998's Rushmore, 2001's LIE, 2002's Adaptation, 2006's Running with Scissors, and 2017's Churchill, among others, and on TV in the 1991 TV movie The Lost Language of the Cranes, the 2001 limited series Nuremberg, for which he won an Emmy, and in guest turns on Frasier in 2002 and Deadwood in 2006. But he is now best known for his commanding performance as the cunning and conniving media mogul and patriarch Logan Roy on HBO's Succession, for which he won this year's Best Actor in a Drama Series Golden Globe Award and is nominated for this year's Best Actor in a Drama Series Emmy Award, the great Brian Cox. Over the course of our conversation, the 74-year-old and I discussed the tragedies of his childhood and his journey to acting, his multiple promising but aborted attempts to make it in Hollywood, how succession finally came along, and what he has found to be its greatest challenges and rewards, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. longtime fan. And I guess just before we get into anything uh, like we normally would, I it, during these times, I have to ask, how are you doing? Where are you doing it? Uh, pretty weird time to be alive. Uh, yeah, I, I'm okay, actually. I've had a very good time. I mean, I've been as busy as hell doing voiceovers and this kind of thing. I'm upstate New York. I'm in the middle of the country. I'm in the middle of a uh, really a forest here. Uh, I've been here since the beginning of March. Uh, I haven't moved. I went to New York once. It was my son's graduation, so I had to go. It was a Zoom graduation, but he did a, he's at the Frank Sinatra School of the Performing Arts, and they did a drive round. Kaufman Studios have very kindly allowed that to happen, so I did that. And um, no, it was, um, you know, I've been doing voiceovers. I've done Zooms. I've done Zoom things for the National Theatre of Scotland. I've done Zoom performances. I've just done Dear Liar with Marsha Mason, which we did for the Raise Money for the Bucks County Playhouse. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to getting back to work so I can go and spend a half an hour quietly in my trailer without being bothered by anybody. <laughs> 
All right. Well, on this podcast, we we really go back to the beginning. And so I would like to begin by asking you uh, if you could just share for people who may not know, where were you born and raised and what was your parents' professions? Well, I was born in Dundee, Scotland in 1946. Uh, my dad was a, a sort of small time grocer. My mother was, um, well, she was quite, after I was born, she was, she became a bit of an invalid, actually. And uh, she was, you know, she was a mother. Uh, I have five elder siblings. I had five. My brother passed 10 years ago. I have, uh, uh, you know, I'm the youngest. I have a sister who's 17 years older than me, and she's now 90. Wow. And uh, she's... Uh, wow. She's in a care home in Scotland. In fact, I'm just about to go off to Scotland um, any minute now um, to see her because I didn't get a ch- I missed her birthday and I missed all that. And she's she sort of looked after me because, as I said, my dad died when I was eight. My mum had a series of very bad nervous breakdowns and was quite incapacitated for about three or four yeah. Three years, three years. So uh, my sister sort of took care of me. Uh, she took care of me. In a funny way, I was very independent, but she looked out for me. Rather than looked after me, she looked out for me, and she was great. So I feel duty-bound to try and get to see her, and I'm, I'm going to go yeah. next week. My education was a complete disaster. Uh, my primary education was okay. I was taught by Maris brothers. They were great until, fortunately, the Maris brothers were moved away, and then it started to go downhill and I was always sent for because I, I was had the gift of the gab I had a teacher called Mr. <laughs> Mr. Robertson who was the headmaster and he would always send me for errands so I would be going down to the local in those days it was the local hi-fi store that dates me and I would be asking for certain styluses for his gramophone you know and with these curious numbers that I had to remember so I would go off and I was always going for errands so I was very you know I would you know I'd come in at nine do my class and then he would come and say Cox uh, can I have you a second and I would go yeah and he said I need um, and he would send me off so I would go off and of course being <laughs> being an opportunist that I am I would take advantage of it and do nothing well I don't want to gloss over you know you you said it was a, a, a I guess it was all within a period of about a year but where you lose your father and then in a sense you lose your mother and I just wonder how does something like that, if you can try to reflect on it, shape, you know, change a change a kid? Is that something you've thought about? Yeah, I think about it all the time. I mean, it, you're you're forced to your own resources at such a young time, and so I've always learned to be. I have no problem being on my own. I'm I'm very good on my own. I'm, a, I'm I, I can be as reclusive as the rest because my childhood was pretty reclusive, and I lived in my own fantasy world. And I was, a, of course, it was the movies. I mean, I used to go to the movies. I would go to the movies. Well, in those days, it was double features. So you would get, and we had, in my hometown, we had 21 cinemas, 21. And so in the, the, in the street parallel to where I grew up, it was called Arthurstone Terrace. So I, I was raised a Catholic. And uh, so there was my church, my library, and then the Broadway cinema. And then Kitty Corner to that was the Royal. Now, there were three-day programs, so I would see as many as eight films in a week because it was all double features. <laughs> and I would, mm-hmm. see two, I would see two at the 
in the first three days at the Broadway and two at the Royal, so that was four. And then from Thursday to Saturday, I see another four. And I did. Were these primarily American films or international films? Or They were all American films. Yeah. I, I, I really had no, you know, uh, those English comedies, which I've grown to like subsequently, <laughs> but they had no effect on me. The, the Ealing comedies didn't have any effect on me. The Endless Doctor series and with, you know, with Kenneth Moore and the early Dirt Bogart and all of that had no effect on me whatsoever. So it was, it was the movies. It was, and it was a mix, it, 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 and it ran the gamut from... I was a huge Martin and Lewis fan. You know, I, that's yes. how far back I go, Martin and Lewis, before Jerry Lewis. And I loved the Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis artists and models and living it up. I mean, those films I just adored. And then, of course, the dramas, uh, which was um, East of Eden, you know. Uh, I, I actually slept through Giant. I, I got locked into the cinema once, going to Giant, because I went on one of my excavates from my headmaster and of course I didn't have to go back he said oh Cox you, 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 you know you just do it and you've done it and you won't have to come back because you, you'll only have an hour of school so don't bother so I would then go to the Green's Playhouse which was a huge cinema in those days I think it was something like 3,000 people and, and people went to the cinema in those days you know mm -hmm. so I would sit and watch Giant and of course I fell asleep and I'd wake up I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning my sister because my mother was in hospital going nuts trying to find me and uh, I would <laughs> then come out and uh, I'd, I would be dark and I, and, and I would be lying in between the seats where I'd been falling asleep and nobody noticed me and then I had to break out of the cinema and as I broke out of the cinema I'd been running along the street, the high street of Dundee and of course I had to run past what is no, now known as the TARDIS from Doctor Who but in those days they were just simple police boxes and I'd run past and I'd hear this voice saying, where are you going young man? And I went, oh <laughs> I just looked round and there's this TARDIS talking to me. I said, oh, sorry, sorry, Mr. Um, uh, uh, what, what are you doing? I said, well, I've just, I've just been to the pictures and I fell asleep. And we called it the pictures, not the movies. i just been to yeah, the pictures yeah. and I fell asleep and uh, I just woke up and uh, I didn't know where I was. Uh, and I think my, my sister, I know your sister's worried about you because she's been trying to find you all over the place. <laughs> You've got half the Dundee police force out looking for you. I said, well, you found me now, sir. <laughs> so um, I'm ready to go home. <laughs> so I... That's so funny. That was me. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, obviously it, you, you had those those difficult aspects that you were dealing with, but also um, I gathered that you had become a bit of the class clown maybe as a, as a coping mechanism. Was that sort of a way to ingratiate yourself to Well, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a way of ingratiating yourself. It was actually a way of trying, you know, because... You know, working class kids can be pretty violent and pretty tough with one another. And, uh, you know, you, there is not, there's, there's none so, you know, children have a, have a streak in them, shall we say. And, uh, I as a little boy, you know, I, I was, because I was the clown, so they used to go, ah, oh, Coxie, Coxie, Coxie this, Coxie that, and it was all that. And I remember there's a guy in my class who probably would be, this, you know, he would probably be diagnosed now as being slightly autistic. And he was a guy, I won't say his name, but he was, because um, I think he's still alive, actually. So uh, I would go, you know, I, and I'd be encouraged to fight this kid, you know, in the playground at, at uh, lunchtime. And, of course, I didn't know how to deal with this. Well, I didn't know how to deal with it. But uh, so what I would do was I'd grab hold of myself 
by there and start throwing myself all over the place and beating myself up, you know, <laughs> beating and doing all of that. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, all these kids slowly would back away from me. As they realized <laughs> this kid was not quite right. <laughs> but it was my defense mechanism. It was my survival mechanism. And it, and it worked. You know, it worked. And people kept away from me, which was a good thing. And, uh, you know, because school is tough. School is tough. <laughs> yeah. Well, in terms of finding a bit of direction in your life, I believe I've got to ask you about two people. I believe Bill Dewar and George Hackett. Is that? Oh my God, you've done your yeah. you've done your homework. Yeah, Bill Dewar and George Hackett. They were they were ostensibly George was my registrar, which was, I was in his class, and he, I was registered to him. And he was an art teacher, and I spent some time in his class. Bill Dewar, I never was taught by, but he was a bit of a singer, so he used to do kind of amateur opera. But he also started this thing called the Rep Club. Uh, which was a club that went to the theatre every... And I'd never been to the live theatre, and I was on, I was coming up to 14. And he, we would go on a Wednesday afternoon. And uh, we'd go on a Wednesday afternoon. And I, you know, it was such a revelation to me to see live actors, because I'd only seen the celluloid variety. And, of course, they weren't American. They were British actors, or, you know ostensibly British, uh, or even English, at the, at the Dundee Rep, Dundee Repertory Theatre, which had been in a theatre that had started in 1939, and it's just last year celebrated its 80th anniversary. And it was a proper, a proper um, repertoire, repertory system, fortnightly rep, and with a fixed company. And they've maintained that company till this present day. They had a, there was a few years when there was none, but they have a, they have a regular company. And I'm very proud of that from my hometown. So Bill, they could see that I was a fish out of water and they could see that, that none of, you know, that I wasn't, I wasn't an idiot. You know, my, my marks were very good, but I wasn't interested. I had so little interest in what was going on around me. In fact, I think my youngest son has inherited that from me. <laughs> and it just kind of, and, you know, he's also an actor. He wants to be an actor as well. And I could understand it because I was just not interested. And then I always mm -hmm. had this thing of performing. I mean, ever since my dad used to put me on the coal bunker at home and I would do, at the age of two, I'd do Jolson in person. And and then that would I would get this all this <laughs> wonderful comeback from you know relatives who said oh Brian well, he can sing he's very so I thought oh yeah this is this could be a life you know you never know <laughs> so so Bill Dewar and George Hackett who both gone now George actually lived till actually just over a year ago he was in his nineties and he was a wonderful man absolutely wonderful man and they both were, actually they both were and they they took me under their wing and they saw that I'd, uh, I had this thing. And luckily enough, um, Bill Dewar had had a student, a guy called Frank McGrath, who'd been there previously at the school. And he had a job at Dundee Rep. And basically, it was a general factotum job, taking the money to the bank in the morning, I mean, and going for errands for the um, for the secretary. And he was called the secretary's assistant. So that job was coming up, and Bill said, why don't you go for it? And uh, I went, oh, okay. So I, uh, I got an interview at Dundee Rep, and uh, I went down there. And, of course, I had to go to the front of the theatre, 
And there was this kind of Beckett-esque conversation I had with this Dundee woman there. She said, can I help you? I said, yes, I've, um, I've come for an interview. I, I'm, I'm, oh, I, yes, you'll have to, if you want to come to the front, you've got to go around the back. You can't get to the front <laughs> from here. You can only get the front from the back. And I just couldn't, I didn't understand what she was talking about. I said, I'm sorry, what do you mean? She said, well, there's, a, there's another street parallel to this. And I think you should go there and then you'll come to the front. They'll tell you how to get to the front, but you kind of get to the front from here, which is the front. I know it's the front, but you kind of get... <laughs> so I said, okay, okay, so fine. So I, I went to the, uh, I went to the, um, the back, and as I, appro- as I came in the close, it was a, what we call a close in Scotland. Uh, it was just a... It was basically... It had been, a, it'd been apartments, and, but there was this thing called the Forester's Hall where the Dundee rep was situated, and it was a beautiful little space, beautiful little space. And, but I went up the stairs, and as I got up the stairs, there were two people having a fight on the stairs. And they were both abusing one another verbally with language which I shouldn't hear at my age, and, and also um, physically abusing one another, you know, pushing one another. And they were both drunk. And it was 10 o'clock in the morning, and I thought, God, is this the theatre? Is this what I'm in for? Is this the life? You know? And uh, I was trying to get past them, you know, and I was That's trying funny. to dodge them as they were fighting, and I was struggling to get... And I finally got to the landing, and there was a lovely actor called Gon Granger, who's still with us, and he was smoking a cigarette, and he looked at me and he said, Are you all right, darling? And he called me darling, and I thought, Nobody's ever called me darling. And I thought... Well, this is where I should be, where they knock hell out of one another <laughs> and they call each other darling. I mean, clearly this is this was meant. So I said, no, I'm just... I, everybody, the lady at the front said that if I went to the back, I could get to the front because I've got an interview. He said, oh, I'll take you. So he took me through the stage and I saw the stage for the first time. I'd seen the stage as an audience member, but I'd never been backstage. So I was going, oh, this is great. So, and then I went to, and I saw this wonderful man, a New Zealand man called John Henderson, who was the theatre director. He wasn't a, he, he was the manager of the theatre and also the director, but he wasn't, he didn't, he was the producer. He didn't actually direct plays. And uh, I, I, I went to the front and he said, uh, so, and then he asked me all these questions. He said, now, are you interested in music? And I went, oh, God. And then I realized that just a couple of days before, um, our music teacher had played something from, uh, something called Aida by Verdi. And I remembered Aida from Verdi and it was the trumpet march. So I'm sitting there and I'm going, well, you know, I'm, I have a I have a particular fondness for the trumpet march from Aida, Aida. <laughs> and of course he could see that I was this was a blag on my part, but he was kind of a, he was he was obviously amused by it. So I got the job, and That's I great. started at the age of fifteen. In fact, I used to get on the I used to I hadn't quite finished the school, so I'd go to school and do what I'd always did. This was now secondary school. I was at another primary school. I would go in, do the register, and then I'd get on the bus and go to work, and then come back <laughs> at 4 o'clock, and, you know. And that was my life. For That was that only happened for about two weeks, but it was interesting. Well, and and for, for two years, I know you were there, but then I think you've described it as one of the happiest things of your life at 17. What, what happened? It was a bliss. Well, at 17, I was... We had... Uh, 
three very good directors uh, who were actual directors of the play. One was uh, an excellent director called Anthony Page, who's gone on to direct on Broadway and stuff, and another director called Piers Haggard, who did a lot of television and films in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. And uh, the other, the last person who ran it was a Canadian guy called Bill Davis. Now, Bill, was in the, he's, he's been a theatre man for many, many years, but he had, he had his living because he became the smoking man in The X-Files. And he was a sort of <laughs> cadaverous figure. He was known as the smoking man. So Bill one day came to me and he said, uh, he said, Brian, uh, I'm, we're going to have a... We're having a series of voice classes. Uh, we got this great, we got this great woman, great, a great girl. He called a great girl coming. Uh, she's, you know, she's been at Lambda, and I said Lambda. She said, yeah, that's where I studied, and, and half a lot of the cast were Canadian. I said, oh, oh, really? He said, yeah, and uh, she's coming up to do a voice class, and I had no idea what a voice class was, and I said, oh, that sounds, that sounds really interesting, Bill. Yeah. So would you like to come? And I, I kind of went, what? I said, oh, yeah, sure, great. And not knowing what the hell I was in for. So this woman arrived and I realized she was fan- fantastic. And it was Kristen Linklater, and, <laughs> uh, who sadly has just passed away. And I, I'm really sad about that because she now runs this voice studio in Orkney. And she was a, a Scot. You know, I wanted to go to that, but she's gone, sadly. But I'm still going to go when I, when I get the time. And when we're out of all this, but she was, it was a revelation, you know, what she was doing. And she, she was a teacher. Uh, I mean, she developed her own method, but she was, her influence was an amazing woman called Iris Warren, who was a fantastic voice teacher who died relatively young at the age of, in her mid fifties, she had cancer. And Christian at the age of, I mean, she was something like 23, 24. 22, 23, she was still very young. She took over. So I went, I, 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 I said, I'm, I've got to go there. So I auditioned and there was an actress in the company who helped me with my pieces called Susan Williamson. And Susan helped me and I, uh, I went to Lambda for an audition in the April of 63. Yeah, April of 63. And I got in and I was, I was still... Um, yeah, I was still 16. And was this essentially like a scholarship? Because I know you didn't, you were not from a family. No, with no, a lot no, of no. But those days, the, the government paid. This is the thing that people don't realize and that people forget about. This is why I'm, a, I'm so much a, a son of the, eight, of the 60s, because the 60s in the UK was an extraordinary time of social mobility, which closed down towards the end of the 70s and then has never opened up since. But it was tremendous for me, a, a young Scots kid with an accent. I mean, I had a... As I spoke, you know, I was Dundonian uh, again. So, I mean, I had an accent that you could cut with a knife. And they were, they were amazing. It was an amazing time. And Lambda was incredible. It was, and it was like the happiest time of my life. I worked with wonderful people. There was a great acting teacher called Vivian Matalon, who I, I really, really admired. And, and he was very clear. Another acting teacher called Dorothy Bromley, who I just, who was just about to celebrate her 90th birthday, funnily enough. And I, and she was, she had tremendous clarity and there was something about it. They, uh, it, 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 they made it understood. There was no mystery about it. There was no, and there was no, any of that kind of, 
BS that you get and associated with certain acting schools, you know, about feeling and emotional memory <laughs> and all that bollocks. Anyway, they, they just they just did it, you know, and it was all about intention, and it was very much it was very much based on the Meisner technique, you know, that was that was the technique that Vivian used, and he did it, his own version of that. And Dorothy, who was a student of Vivian, Dorothy Bromley, she used it as well. And of course, lo and behold, of course, Kristen was the reason I'd gone to Lambda. And five weeks after I started at Lambda, she buggered off to America. <laughs> and that was that. And I've always, well, she always describes me as the student that got away. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you were there, I know, through 1965, at which point you go off for a few years to different theater companies, um, eventually graduating to London in 67, which is a got to be a, a landmark moment for you. And I guess I just wonder at that point, you know, if you can set the scene of, I think it was like the angry young man period of, of the British theater and all of that, but also even then, now we're talking 53 years ago, I think, were you, were you thinking to yourself, I would like to not only act on the stage, but I would like to act on the screen, or was it purely theater at those times? No, no, no. It was it, For me, it was always, I wanted to be a cinema actor right from the word go, because that was my influence. That was my, my, my world, was the world of the cinema. So I, that was what I really wanted to do. The theater, because it's an essentially, you know, it's very interesting. If you think about it, uh, America, which is supposed to be, it's slightly... Mm -hmm not that anymore, but it's supposed to be an egalitarian society. And it's true that the cinema is really the product of egalitarian societies. France, America, Russia, uh, there is the sense of what cinema does. Now, the theatre, in its essence, not necessarily its execution, but in its essence, is, is feudal. You know, it's people in their place and it's all about social structures and especially in my country, which is what Shakespeare, that's why Shakespeare is still the great voice and, you know, he's undeniable, you know, you can't get around him. So that for me, so I was learning something new about the theatre in which I didn't have. And I, my time at, you know, I finished at Lambda, and I, I only did two years, so I was 19 when I was already coming out of Lambda. I went to Scotland, I came back up to Scotland, and I was a founder member of the Royal Lyceum Theatre, and I was there for a year. And that was a very interesting time, because the man who'd founded it was a guy called Tom Fleming, and, you know, the Edinburgh Festival had been very successful, and he felt that, as I feel, that it should be more, the, 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 that should be a kind of international thing the year round. So he did a lot of very uh, kind of extraordinary, daring uh, product and producing, which the locals didn't quite go for. I mean, he did, he had Mrozhek come, uh, Mrozhek plays, he did Mrozhek, and uh, directed by a famous Polish scholar, Shakespeare scholar, Jan Kot. And he, Jan Kot came and directed this extraordinary thing. And so there was a lot of, Tom was seeking to to put Edinburgh like 24-7 into an international thing. And it was, unfortunately, all came to nothing. So I did a year uh, there. And then during that time, we did a production of Galileo, uh, in which I played the young man, Andrea Sarti. And it was with Tom, who was wonderful as Galileo. 
And I met this director, this Yorkshire director called Peter Dews. Now, Peter Dews had been revolutionary himself because he had done the first ever, this was way before Peter Hall, he had done a thing called The Age of Kings, which was done on television. And it was my introduction to Shakespeare, was watching The Age of Kings. And The Age of Kings in it, you know, I don't know if the tapes still exist, but they were incredibly good. And they were all studio, it was all studio bound. And it was the whole of the, it started with Richard II and then it went right up to Richard III. And so you went through Henry V. No, you... Yeah, Richard II, Henry IV, part one, Henry IV, part two, Henry V uh, into Richard III. Uh, Henry VI, all of those. Henry VI, part one. Yeah, so it was all of that. So it was an amazing event, and they were cut down to an hour. But And Peter, he conceived this... And it was an extraordinary thing. And, you know, people like Sean Connery played Hotspur. And I remember Sean as Hotspur, this kind of sweating, where a shot of action that he had, you know, doing his... <laughs> you, my leisure did deny no prisoners, you know. So it was, I mean, and, he, you know, nobody bothered in those days. He just did it. And he was phenomenal. He was phenomenal. He did a lot of stuff. In fact... And I remember actually Connery doing Requiem for a Heavyweight on the television. And there was also great television at the time. You know, Pat McGowan, Patrick McGowan did uh, a production of Brand, Ibsen's Brand. Now, you don't get that now. You don't get the classics in that way. But that was available to us. You know, that was the stuff was available. So that was that was the background in which I grew up. So when I went to... When I went to, after I finished Edinburgh, Peter Jews said, hey, Lovey, do you want to come down to Birmingham? I'm going to be running a theatre in Birmingham. And Birmingham was very famous because it was the, the theatre that engendered people like Paul Schofield, Laurence Olivier, Derek Jacobi, Albert Finney, who was a big hero of mine. I mean, that was the other thing. When I saw Albert Finney on Saturday night and Sunday morning when I was 14, because I, you know, because I wasn't American, I thought, I'm not going to get anywhere because I'm not American. You know, everybody, and I'm you know, but seeing Albert play that part in that film, and that was again the social mobility. I just thought, oh, it's possible. I can do it. I can get it. Anyway, mm-hmm. so going on to where I was, and I was just—it was just amazing. You know that I was, I was there. And he said, "So, what do you want to play, Lovey? What would you like to play?" He said, I, "I've got a few ideas." He said, "I think maybe you should play. Um, you know, it would be nice if to see you do a Hamlet. Uh, you know, we could do a Hamlet if you wanted. Uh, but also, you know, I think it would be great to see in something like, you know, as you like it, uh, Romeo and Juliet. That would be good for you. You know, playing." You know, the Mercutio, you'd be really good in that. And uh, Othello, I could see you doing Iago, that would be good. He said, and also, I think, you know, you should do other stuff, like Ibsen, you know, Peer Gint. You'd be a good Peer Gint. And (laughs) blow me, by the time I was 22, I had played, I didn't play Hamlet, much to my regret in my life, but I did play Iago, Mercutio, Orlando, Bolingbroke, Pier Gent. I played all of that by the time I was 22. And, you know, nobody gets that now. Nobody. And that was in repertoire. And that's, you know, that's the school of hard knocks where you just learn because of the material. You know, you, you're you completely overwhelmed by it. But at the same time, it's like, oh, this is, this is the stuff. This is the stuff. So I was very, very fortunate to have Peter. And Peter gave me... You know, and also he had this wonderful common sense thing because he was a Yorkshireman. So I remember, and Michael Gambon played Othello, would you believe? So that was in the days where before 
you know, what happened. But uh, and Michael's, and he'd actually understudied and in Olivier's Othello, and that, of course, I'd seen that as a student and been completely mesmerized by that performance because to see that performance on stage, I know there's a film of it, but it's nothing like the audacity of him walking out on the stage and, oh, my brave warrior, you know, with holding, smelling the rose. <laughs> I mean, it was just extraordinary, you know. So, um, and we did that, and then we used to rehearse in Peter's office, and, and Peter was so... Matter of fact, he was so commonsensical, and that was how he's viewed, you know, the scenes. So all that stuff with Iago and my lord did not Michael Cassio when you would not know you know, why do you have because of that? Because so it was all done in a very insidious way, but it was showing, you know, how the the machinations of Iago work. And of course, Othello can't see it because he's he doesn't, you know, he trusts his. He trusts his answer. So it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And then we got a success. We did the, we did a, it was described as the Carnaby Street, um, as you like it. But in fact, it was based on Polish folk theatre. It was directed by a wonderful designer, designed by a woman called Pamela Howard, and it was based on Polish folk theatre. But because of the clothes, the, the, especially when they all dress up, it looked a bit like Carnaby Street. In fact, we did, a, we, did we transferred to London with that, and we did very well. We actually had a very good time. And I was 21. That was me. That was my London debut when I was 21. Amazing. Well, 67 is when you make that London debut. 71 is when your first film credit is, Nicholas and Alexandra playing Trotsky. And I just want to kind of set the scene for listeners because this is under the direction of Franklin Schaffner, the same year that he won the Oscar for Best Picture for Patton and Best Director for his work on that and the lead is Olivier. You have to feel like, you must have felt like you had arrived in heaven. Well, it was incredible. I remember, of course, it was produced by the famous Sam Spiegel. You know, and uh, and I have a story about that. So we all went along. There was John McHenry, there was... Oh, there was Jimmy Hazel, Dean Conn, all these guys are gone now. Uh, Michael Bryant. And we all went, you know, Michael Bryant played, he played Lennon. And, you know, we were all being auditioned and I was being auditioned. I was also doing a play up in, what was it? It was up in the north somewhere. It's gone, the place is gone. Uh, and I was it, was, it was five hours away from London by train. And I'd been in, I'd been out, I'd been in, and, you know, and it was Kerensky, I was up for Kerensky, then it was Trotsky, and then it was Kerensky again, it was Trotsky, so it was kind of going back and forth on this. And finally, you know, they said, um, I got this message, you've got to come, they want to see you again. And I thought, my God, I've been already there four or five times, what is it? So, no, they want to see you again, so can you... Uh, can you uh, get on? A, can you come? And so it meant that I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning, go get on a train, get there by ten, do the interview at eleven, and get another train that got me at twelve o'clock to get me at five o'clock in the afternoon. It was just so tight. So I'm sweating, and I'm, I, I, so I go to this office, and it was was it Irene Lamb. No, it wasn't. It was not Irene Lamb. It was. I'm trying to remember who the casting director was. Very nice, you know, distinguished lady. So I came, and uh, as I walked in, they went, <laughs> literally, they went, oh, not you again. And I went, <laughs> well, hang on. I said, you know, I said, you know, I, I have been in the theater. He said, oh, well, you, you know, we don't need to see you. You're in the picture. 
I said, oh. He said, yeah, yeah. Frank was shouting, he used to spoke these cigars. He said, yeah, you're in the picture. We, we want you in the movie. And she said, yes, you're in the picture. I said, okay, I'm in the picture. I said, so, um, so uh, can I ask, uh, what am I playing? <laughs> <laughs> I said, is it, is it Kerensky or is it Trotsky? And this, this is literally what Spiegel said. He said, Kerensky, Trotsky, you're in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's great. So, so I was in the picture and then I went off and did that. And it was working with uh, Olivier, uh, Michael Redgrave, uh, Jack Hawkins, who had had, had throat cancer and had a... He, he was dubbed in the end, but he was he, he he spoke the lines, but in you know with great difficulty. Michael Bryant, the wonderful actor, Michael Bryant, Jimmy Hazeldean who played uh, played Stalin, and and John McHenry who played Kerensky, and we did that film. And I remember the first day of it was I'd never been in such an atmosphere because it was like going into a cathedral. And of course, the it was Freddie Young, who of course had won an Oscar for Alonso of Arabia, and so he was there, lighting, and it was you could, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. You know, everybody was talking quietly. He was getting the lights. He would go, "Could you put that just there?" And it was like that was, and I was, this is it. And we were all kind of so hush hush as Freddie Young shot that scene, you know. And it was, it was and they gave me these glasses. They gave me these pebble glasses, which I could not see out of because they were thick pebble glasses. So I, I literally couldn't see. So there was a point where I had to exit. You know, I had to go at the end of the scene, and I, and I, I thought, where's the door? I can't see the door. And I looked, and I said, oh, that, I can see the top of the door. I said, okay. So I got to the door, and I got, where's the frickin' handle? <laughs> and I found the handle. It's all there. It's all on, it's all on screen. Well, in those, uh, you know, subsequent years in the early mid-'70s, I, I was reading some of the coverage of you there was a new york times review i forget for which for which production stage or screen but they described you quote brian cox a chap who looks a bit like the young brando close quote you were uh you know it seemed like you had a a, a lot going on and then finally I, I, and i'm going to ask you to pick up this story you get the call from Hollywood, right? It's going to be, and it sounds like it's a, it's all going to happen. John Schlesinger, Robert Evans, come to Hollywood. <laughs> what what was that about? Well, that was in the mid seventies, and I'd already been going for a few years. And uh, no, well, my God, you have done your homework. Uh, <laughs> no, what happened was I was I was visiting my sister. It was night. It was the bicentennial year. You know, I, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Laurence Olivier saved my life. In fact, if it wasn't for Lawrence Olivier, I wouldn't be here. Because wow. uh, when I was at the Lyceum Theatre, this was back in the 60s, I, uh, I, I was summoned to do an interview, uh, a, a meeting with Lawrence Olivier. And, uh, and I was all packed, ready to go. And, uh, and I was, it was in Edinburgh. I was in Edinburgh. I was at the Lyceum. And then I got this message uh, that he, well, no, it was on the day I was leaving. I got my bag packed. I was about to get on. There was a, in those days, you used to have midnight planes, late planes that you can get on for 30 shillings. It was very cheap. So I was, I was, I was, you know, I was heading for that 
that's what I was heading for. So it was, it was after the man and the little guy, Jimmy, who was the stage donor, she said, oh, Brian, I found this wee note at the back of your cubby hole. He said, I, I think you missed it. It's, it's been there since yesterday. I said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah. He said, so I got the note and I said, uh, Sir Lawrence can't see you this weekend, so you can't, there won't be any audition. And I'd already packed and gone, and I thought... Oh, to hell with it. Shall I, what shall I do? Shall I go? And I, I had some friends that I was going to be staying with, and I said, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And I, I we did the show, and I went to the... There's a pub called The Shakespeare, funny enough, in, in, in Lothian Road, just opposite the Lyceum. So I'm sitting there, and I and I think, oh, to hell with it, I won't go. So I went back to my digs in, in, in Stockbridge in Edinburgh. And the following morning, I picked up the paper... And the flight that I would have been on crashed in London, killing everybody aboard. Oh, my God. And I always am grateful to Olivia that he saved my life. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Yeah. What was that leading on to you? Your question. Well, just back to where, where you were, Schlesinger and Evans, yeah. Yeah, so I flew. Yeah, that's right. I, I had to fly to America because there was no other way of getting there, you know. And so I flew and then I took the train. I went. I took the train right across the country. I, I ended up, you know, going coming into, you know, downtown Los Angeles by train. And then I went out from Los Angeles to L.A., to, to Frisco, to, well, to Oakland, then Oakland, back to Chicago, all by train. So I was there, it was 76, and um, I knew I was going to be going to the, the, the National. I was, I'd been offered a thing at the National. So I thought, mm, okay. So then I get this call, John Schlesinger wants to meet you. And I went, oh, John Schlesinger, wow. So I... Uh, I get all spruced up and I go to the Paramount building in the Paramount Studios and there's the Hollywood sign in Paramount and I'm going in and, and, and his secretary's very says, oh yes, John's, John's desperate to see you. He said, um, could you go, would you go, uh, he'll take you in one of the... One of the um, young people, you know, he took me through this place and I went and sat in this little room, alcove room, which turned out was off the editing suite. And I was sitting there and thinking, why am I here? What's this about? It's a... <laughs> and uh, I met this guy. There was this guy sitting opposite me. And uh, I said, and he said, hi. I said, hi. He said, uh, you, you, you're a friend of John's? I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm to meet him for, um, the, uh, we're just having a meeting. He said, oh. He said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, I think there are some reshoots. I said, reshoots? He said, yeah, yeah, on this movie that they're making. I said, oh, oh, good. He said, yeah. He said, you know, I'm, um, I'm here, but I'm, I'm taking over from the editor. Because uh, I said, oh, you are? He said, yeah. Uh, it's not kind of working out. And his, this guy was called Jim Clark, who was a famous editor. And I said, oh, oh that's good. So I, um, <laughs> I'm still sitting in the room, and this kind of head pops around with glasses, big glasses, and sort of completely you know, almost, almost Indian-looking kind of guy. Well, that's sort of man. Who are you? I said, I, I'm uh, Brian Cox. He said, Brian who? What? What are you here for? I said, well, I'm, I'm here to meet John. He said, John, why? I said, I, 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 I don't know, it's something. He said, oh, yeah, okay. And this was Robert Evans. And I went, oh, because I, I said to Jim Clark, I said, who is that? He said, well, that's Robert Evans, that's the producer. And I'm thinking, oh, just mounting up. So 
I get the message saying to John to tell me to go back to his office and he'll see me in the office. So I go back to the office and I'm sitting in the office and John comes in. He's very nice. And he said, so I hear a lot about you. You've got a very, you know, you know, a lot of people say good things about you. I said, oh, that's great. He said, yeah. He said, you know, we have this part until I should have you in the role. And I'm going, oh, wow. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this is my film break. I'm getting a big break. Wow. He said, yes. He said, yes, I'm going to be directing Julius C at the National Theatre in the UK, in London. And I went, and um, Sebastian, who was his assistant, who had been his assistant in the previous day, suggests that you might do Brutus. Well, he just lost the actor, Colin Blakely, who didn't want to work with John again, so the part became available. And I went, oh, oh, that's wonderful. And I was thinking... Oh, okay. Damn. Yeah, you thought you were going to be a marathon man, right? <laughs> going to be a marathon man, you know. So anyway, um, that's what happened. I ended up going back to London and rehearsing uh, <laughs> Julius Caesar. Well, I didn't do Julius Caesar first. I did Tamburlaine with Albert Finney, who I knew right. and I'd worked with before. But that took forever. I mean, we rehearsed that for something like eight months, and then that was all problems at the theater and everything. It was yeah, ridiculous. But we should say, so that was Brush with Hollywood number one. Then... By 84, the play Strange Interlude, which then brings you to Broadway for the first time in 85. And that, I believe, is what essentially led to Hollywood Brush number two with Manhunter. So can you just explain? I guess Bonnie Temerman enters the picture here, right? Exactly. What what happened was it was in fact it wasn't strange. I mean, I I, I went to I, I I'd had a I had a time in the beginning eighties where I was, I was feeling you know I was in my thirties then and I was mid thirties, and I was feeling a little bit um, woebegone because, you know, I'd done a lot of theatre and you know I seemed to be on a what do you think, not a treadmill, those things that keep repeating themselves, you know. Uh, I keep moving in the same circle. And uh, what happened was that um, I actually stopped acting for a bit. I went and worked in a gym, of all places. And, and really? Because I, yeah, I played Danton and Danton's Death. I'd done this film about with Albert Finney about the Pope, which was... <laughs> ridiculous and uh, so I was feeling a little bit woebegone I just thought oh, you know fed up so and I, I just stopped I just thought I've had enough I won't, I won't I won't do anymore and then what happened was that I got this call uh, from wonderful director who is the is the was the father of uh, he's past now called Michael Elliott and he was the father of Marianne Elliott who and Marianne Elliott later became my assistant and he said Pat McGoon's a no-show. We were doing Moby Dick, and I want you to play Take Over from him. So I did this. I took over as Ahab, and, and it was me getting back into the theatre again. And then out of that, I got Strange Interlude, and out of that, I got this play called Rat in the Skull, which I did. Well, I had that bef That was done because of a relationship with the director who I knew from Matt Stafford Clark. So... I was doing the, both these plays, and both of them, one went to the Nederlander, and the other one was Pap brought it to the public. So I came to the, I did the, I did the strange interlude, and then I went. I never, I was, I was away for God, I was away for the best part of ten months. So I then went on to do uh, Rat in the Skull, which we had done, and originally we did it with Gary Oldman, you know, who was in the original production, and we did it. And it was a huge success and great reviews, 
Frank Rich, who is the butcher of Broadway, and, <laughs> and I know Frank now because of Succession, yeah. and he's someone like a butcher isn't true, but he was known as the butcher of Broadway. Yeah. And he was very, very good, very kind about about uh, this play, um, Rat in the Skull. And I was playing this policeman, and it was a part that I had a... In the early part, I had this 35-minute monologue, virtual monologue that I had. And uh, my dear, dear... Uh, and we weren't friends at the time, but we became friends because of that. Brian Dennehy was going to do The American. They were going to do it at Wisdom Bridge in uh, in Chicago, directed by Bob Falls. So he came to see me about 10 times in the play. Because uh, I used to, wow. I said, because he, he came to me and he was, he was so, he was, uh, he's a wonderful man, Brian, a wonderful man. You know, he was, he could be, you know, he could be curmudgeonly, but he was just wonderful. And he was very kind to me, very kind. And he said, so he came to see me and he saw it 10 times. So he said, you know, you're mesmerizing, you're mesmerizing. And I apparently, and I'd forgotten I said this and he reminded me, he said, he said, you know, when you said, when I said you were mesmerizing and you said to me, and yeah, you were memorizing. <laughs> <laughs> so Brian, you know, and Brian had been, there were this film, uh, and he'd done a film for Michael Mann. I can't remember what the film was, but he'd done a film for Michael, and Michael and him were friends. And he was thought about as, as, uh, as Hannibal Lecter before Hannibal Lecter was ever known. And Dennehy, both Dennehy and... Uh, and and Michael, they just thought, well, you know, I'm too big. You know, I'm, you know, I mean, my, I mean, those days he lost inches as he got older, but he was six four. You know, he's a big guy. He said, I think I'm too big. He said, the guy you want is Cox. <laughs> and uh, man, man didn't know who's Cox. He said, oh, there's this actor. He's this uh, English. They always call you English. You know, <laughs> it's English actor, of course. <laughs> I've learned to live with that. So, so yeah, he said, yeah, this English actor, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's, 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 he's pretty good. I said, oh, and he said, okay, well, we'll see. So the next thing I knew, I get this call from Bonnie Timmerman. Could I go to her office and do uh, put myself on tape uh, mm -hmm. for this thing? So Phil Jackson, who was in the play with me and was, one of my oldest friends, I said, Phil, would you come with me and, you know, be, be, you know, do the lines off for me? He said, sure, I'll do that. So I came into Bonnie. Bonnie is so, oh, she's just gorgeous. I just love Bonnie. I just want to kind of, oh, kind of, you know, she's, she needs, she's, a, she's quite sacred for me, Bonnie. You know, she's this rather precious person. And uh, so she's very quiet. And I come and she said, um, would you mind, I'm going to put you on tape, but I don't want to see your face. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and she said, no, no, uh, I, I want you to be, can you be away from the camera? Can I see you? I just, I just want to see the back of your head. I, I, I don't care. I mean, maybe eventually we can see your face, but I, it's, it's very important that I, I so, so I, I did that audition and I'm away and, it's that same smell, isn't it? And I'm, I'm doing all this. And uh, so, and afterwards I said, so why 
did you have me turn away from the camera? And she said, well, you know, I came to the theatre to see you in, uh, in Rat in the Skull uh, on Brian's recommendation. She said, you've got to see you. And I came and it was wonderful. But I got late. I got there late and I, I, I wasn't in my proper seat. So I couldn't see you. For I heard you, but I couldn't see you for the first 45 minutes of the show. But I heard you, and you were, sounded wonderful. So I thought, <laughs> and then I saw you in the second half, and of course, she said, so I thought it would be good not to see you, just to hear you. So, and, and that is how I start the character, because I start mm -hmm. turning away, you know, and it's that same <laughs> smell and all that. So he's in his world. And that's, that's, that's so Bonnie. That's old Bonnie. Well, yeah. Well, we should just uh, remind people that this was, you know, Michael Mann's movie Manhunter came out five years before The Silence of the Lambs. You were Hannibal, you know, five years before Hopkins. And it was not a huge part in terms of screen time. I think it was something like 10 minutes, but it was very memorable. However, this was going to be the big break and then it doesn't really do well. And and uh, well, it didn't, I think it, it was it, a, it wasn't yeah. it critically did well. But he was broke. Dina De Laurentiis was broke. In fact, Dina De Laurentiis came to hate Manhunter because it represented the worst time in his financial career. He was broke. He tried to start Hollywood up in, of all places, in a, in a hurricane zone, which is uh, <laughs> Wilmington, North Carolina. And of course, he, you know, the, the hunger came, came through. Yeah, but the, I mean, and all the, the, the guys who built the sets, because it was a shipwright nation, they, were, they built these sets, and these sets were solidly built, and they lasted. They, they you know, I mean, they, he did a, there was a film with Mickey Rourke called something about China. And uh, that set, I remember, used to go and was still standing and had been beaten by all kinds of weather. And, uh, yeah, and then the film went into an escrow. Uh, it opened in L.A. The reviews were excellent. And then it went to an escrow, and, and it couldn't get the distribution because he didn't have the money. So it founded on that, and it was Jeremy Thomas who'd seen the film. And he distributed it in, in the UK, and it was a big success. People said, wow, this is amazing, this film. And, and of course, then, you know, and I still have a proof copy of Silence of the Lambs, which was sent to me by Tom Harris. And it's soft proof copy, and I read it, and I thought, wow, this is good. And then that was that. I had no more about it. You know, I didn't know that was the end of it. And then it was all these years, well, it was something like five years later or something, that uh, that I had, I, we had the same agent. And uh, <laughs> my agent rings me up and he says, ah, this is film, Brian. It sounds very similar to that film you made, that, um, that man-hunting <laughs> thing he said you made. It's very similar. It's called Silence of the Lambs. I said, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's written by the same guy. It's the same character. He said, yes, but he's called Quigley, the character. I said, no, no, the character I played was called Lecter. I don't know. I said, well, they've asked, they've asked Tony to play this part. And I said, well, Quigley. I, don't, I can't remember Quigley. And it turned out that there was some quarrel over the spelling of Lecter. Uh, it's spelt differently in, in both the films. And it was something that I think Michael, Michael wanted to do it, but I don't know. He, I think, you know, Michael can be quite mercurial. So uh, <laughs> what happened was that um, they, he kept the name 
And eventually they they came to some agreement over the name, and so the name came, except with a different spelling. So that was uh, the unfortunately premature end of number two of three trips to Hollywood. Um, and we'll just, uh, just know, it's not like you, I think you, my sense was that it was disappointing to you, but that you go back and you do some of the best work you've done. You've said the best thing you've done on the stage was Titus Andronicus and for the Royal Shakespeare Company in the late 80s. You joined there, you do that, you then do uh, King Lear, uh, just all kinds of I great did King, I work. Did King, all, people get this wrong. I, I did King Lear at the National. I didn't do it at the RSC. Right, right, right. But I mean, you're doing, and then you're also, I think, while still in the UK, some major films, if I'm correct about this, just timing-wise, Hidden Agenda for Ken Loach, Rob Roy, and Braveheart. So after, you know, you've been in, again, with some, in 95 alone, Rob Roy and Braveheart. Braveheart wins the Best Picture Oscar eventually. But in 95, at 49, let's give Hollywood, you decide, let's give Hollywood one more go of it. I mean, you know, I'd had this thing about being a movie actor all my life, you know, that I still wanted to be. But I also, and this is the conditioning, you know, Tony suffered from this as well. You know, we're both Celts and we both have that thing about, you know, the fact that we are, this is why I've become a a big movement. Scottish independence has meant a lot to me and it didn't mean anything to me. But as I've got older, I've realized that something about the particular and of course, Richard Burton was the same. He was a Welshman. Peter O'Toole was half Scots, uh, half Irish, born in the UK, born in Leeds. So there was that connection that who we were. Tony had a tough time, I think, in the beginning 70s, which is why he went to America. And of course, America represented a kind of freedom that we didn't have in the UK. But at the same time, and the thing that caught me because I was in my 30s by then, I was, well, I was actually in my 40s, was that I had never really cleaned up in the way I felt I should in terms of the classical theatre. So it was necessary for me after, you know, the false things of Manhunter, and I, I had to go up with this horrible film which was made about China, I remember. It was an adaptation of a book about Jardine Matheson, the people who, run, who you know, and I, and I went up for that and it all petered away. So I, I really decided to go to the RSC because I needed a job. I was also going through a divorce. So I went mm-hmm. to the RSC in order to, you know, kind of be regulated and also my kids that I was going to be, you know, separated from. And it was the last place, because I had always been, the national had always been the thing, but I loved the RSC. I loved the company feeling. I loved the the atmosphere. And I had a great time. And I, and I went to the Barbican, which is an unusual start. So I decided, you know, that, you know, I that my theatre chops, you know, which I had not exercised to the full, were suddenly being called upon doing Shaw, Shakespeare, of course. And then this... This this play that nobody would touch called Titus Andronicus because it was such a it was such a kind of extraordinary play, very difficult play because it's 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 so extreme. And I read it, and of course I laughed a lot. I just thought it was so funny, but it was like a black comedy. And also, I had an experience at the beginning eighties. I played I played Macbeth in a tour of India 
And I remember I was playing in Delhi and, uh, you know, and I'd done, I had, you know, I'd been successful in the theatre. But I was always feeling a little constrained, you know, I felt, that, you know, a little anglified, you know, sort of proper and all that. <laughs> and I remember this, this young Indian girl, she was 16, and I can't remember her name now, but she was a Katak dancer. You know, and she did all that. She could do all this movement-wise. And she was my dresser. And I was working and doing the play, and she came to me one day and she said, you know, Mr. Coach, may I say something? And I said, sure. She said, I, I watch you on stage and I feel that you, are, you want to break out. You want to be, you want to go somewhere, but you, know, you don't allow yourself to do it. 16-year-old. And I went, mm. oh, Okay. She said, yeah, I just, I just think that you, you're incredibly expressive, but I think you don't, you stop yourself from being as expressive as you could be. And I, I realized that this was so true of, of my career so far, because I, you know, my roots, uh, you know, are all the proper Stanislavski, um, you know, Meisner, all those roots. But there's another side of me, which was the Scottish vaudevillian side, which the free agent comic side. So I, I started and she would direct me. She would come off and say, I would do, be doing those big speeches, you know, if it were done. And then the, you know, must, you know, the, the whole, you know, uh, is this a da all the dagger stuff and all that. And of course, she just kept saying, "Go further, go further." And eventually, I was sort of crawling all over the stage. <laughs> so that was that was something that was there. So I realised that when I when I was at Stratford and, and I took the job because I needed to be in one place and I needed to not to be moving around. And I was and it was in London. It was the Barbican, and they asked me to go up and they said, "Would you do Titus?" I read Titus and I thought. Wow, this is such a part that I, I can do all those things that I've always wanted to do in the theatre, but I've always, I've always been a little bit fearful of, you know. And I did it. Uh, and it was a great success. It was probably my biggest theatrical success. And then... Olivier Award and all, all kinds of all stuff. That. Yeah. And, and, so, and then, I, then it led on to doing King Lear at the National. So I... And I, I was driven because I wanted to kind of keep my theater date, the, the date with my theater destiny, you know, and I felt I did that. So when it came to the, you know, I was directing, um, I, I was in a production of, the, of Richard III uh, and uh, with Ian McKellen, um, and I didn't particularly like the production. And so I was asked to direct it at the Regent's Park. So I thought I've got to, you know, it can't be a bad place. So I've got to, I've got to lay that ghost. So I directed it, and at the same time, though, I found out they were doing the Music Man, and my kids, you know, I, I raised my kids on Robert Preston and the Music Man because I just think it's fantastic. I love it. So, and I kind of knew it quite well, you know, Trouble in River City, and. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that as well. So I directed one thing, and my assistant was Marianne Elliott, ironically. Yes. And I did that, and then I realized I now got to go to America. I've done what I can do in the terms of how I want to do the theater, but I don't want to become those theater actors who just keep <laughs> repeating themselves in a way. Right. And I want to take a risk. So 
I took myself at the age of 49 off to Hollywood. And the 25 years since then have been just from an outside perspective. I don't know how you felt during all those years, but I mean, I, I just want to zoom through some of the standout credits. I'll stop on a few and just if you have a sentence or two that you want to share about your memory, but heading towards the present, let's just say an IRA boss and Jim Sheridan's The Boxer with also Daniel Day-Lewis, that's 1997. The Headmaster in Wes Anderson's Rushmore, 1998. Super Troopers, the uh, the senior police officer, 2001. Uh, LIE in 2001 also, where that's an interesting one that I know a lot of other people discourage you from even doing, but you ended up with all kinds of accolades just to remind people you're playing basically a charming pedophile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. I mean, he's not a a pedophile because he doesn't go, there are gradations on this. He's not a pedophile because it's, it's sexually mature boys. So it's from 14 to 18 and then it's over. Okay. So that was, that's, uh, and that was with Paul, young Paul Dano and you all kinds of accolades for that. Then what was at the time the highest rated, high, highest ever viewership ratings for a basic cable miniseries, Goering in Nuremberg for TNT in 2001, win an Emmy, nominated for a Globe and a SAG Award. I guess we should just pause there for a moment because that was a big one. Yeah, I mean, Goering was, you know, again, you know, I've always, you know, I've always, I played a lot of bad guys, you know, so-called yeah. bad guys. And of course, my belief is that nobody is fundamentally bad. People are fundamentally flawed, but they're not necessarily, they can become bad, but they start by being flawed. And I just thought that Goering was a, a fantastic opportunity to to tell the truth about a character, to really reveal this man for what he was as opposed to what what he seemed to be, you know. And he was incredibly loyal, and he was a man who'd gone through a mental breakdown himself. Uh, at the end of the war, he was a war ace. He was a flying ace. He was the second most decorated ace after Rich- von Richthofen. Uh, he had a squadron that he flew into Switzerland and he abandoned his squadron there uh, on the plains and uh, then went to live in Sweden. Had a nervous breakdown, lived in Sweden, married his first wife who died. And, uh, and then this young Austrian sort of emerged and he started to see something that was going on and put himself you know, at the disposal of this young Austrian who turned out to be Adolf Hitler. And it was just, to me, just an amazing and extraordinary life. And also, he, on Kristallnacht, uh, he was badly injured on Kristallnacht, and he was saved by two Jewish ladies who he'd monitored uh, throughout his time. Uh, in um, They found out about these women. Uh, and his wife was an actress. She was also an actress in, the, you know, his marriage. It was very funny because he had this marriage with horses and everything. He was slightly overweight. His wife, there was, they were middle-aged, the pair of them, when they got married. And uh, I was just fascinated by this this conundrum in him. And he he took the idea of concentration camps from the British idea, because they were the first ones to use concentration camps in the Boer War. And concentration camps were just to concentrate people. This was before they became death camps. He had very little to do, in fact, nothing to do with the death camps. He was uh, he was out of the picture by then, you know. He, 
Uh, and certainly he wasn't concerned, he wasn't connected with the final solution. He was also in denial as well. So he just presented this wonderful character. And then, of course, when he, when he was... He wanted to be put to death as a soldier. He wanted to be shot. He didn't want to be hung. And uh, he was to be hung, which he had sorted out. He got some poison, so he didn't have it. But at the same time, Jackson, who was this the attorney who cross-questioned him, he gave him a lecture during those trials. We don't, we don't quite do it in the film. We nearly do it, but not quite. He gave him a lecture on why Germany was Germany, why it became that way, and why, you know, what had happened in terms of um, people who had invested in, who made a lot of money out of weapons, you know, and a lot of families involved in that, some Jewish families involved in that. So there was a whole, there was a whole question that he, he kind of saw, you know, how the economy had gone. And also he was very much, he felt that the, the Treaty of Versailles, as it was, was a fairly brutal yeah. treaty. So all of that added to this extraordinary man. But also he was, he was a cross-dresser, so he was given to known to dress up and he designed his uniforms and he was enormously wet. And of course the worst thing they ever did to him was to take away his medication and put him on a diet because that actually honed him back to his brain so he was a he was a really really fascinating man to play and of course again yes. he you know he's ostensibly regarded as a bad man but then my belief is that you know there are bad people who there are people who are behave in a certain way and let's put it this way he was a much better script than donald trump <laughs> well let's uh Go to the next year where in a it's just an unbelievable year on on paper here and and on screen. Uh, I remember I, in two thousand two, nominated for an Emmy for playing Daphne's dad on Frasier. Then also Twenty Fifth Hour as the father who uh, bails out Edward Norton. The Ring, the kind of reclusive guy, and then one of the times that I know I I was mesmerized by you. I got a big kick out of. Uh, you playing Robert McKee in Adaptation. And I believe Robert McKee was somebody that you'd actually studied with. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to Robert's class in Glasgow and got to know him. And uh, I mean, all kinds of people were being talked about for that role. I mean, Michael Caine, everything. But Bob said, no, there's only one guy, Cox. Cox has got to play that part. He's got to play it. And <laughs> I, I, that's when I, I, I met to, uh, Spike Jones, who I have such yes. respect for. And uh, we met during a fire drill at his apartment in London when firemen were running all over the building. And he was in his, I remember he was, he did didn't have his shoes on, he was in bare feet. And uh, yeah, I got the job, and it was a great part. And of course, I'd studied Bob, I'd, I'd watched it. And Bob is a great, you know, he's a, oh, he's a wonderful man, Bob. And he's, a, you know, he's, a, he's an enthusiast, you know, he's a, yeah. he's a master. We actually had him on this podcast a few years ago. It was, he's a complex, interesting guy. And you did, you were so great. He really is, and and he loves the work. I mean, he's a great lover of the work, and you know, and, and his thing on the thing, in his class when he does Casablanca, it's 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 accurate and it's also moving. Yeah, but no uh, no voiceover. <laughs> That's what he doesn't want. To do. So you, you know, also that year was the beginning of some very big 
large scale movies for you. Born Identity in 2002, going into X2 from the X-Men franchise in 2003. Troy in 2004 with Brad Pitt. Match Point in 2005 with Woody Allen. And then another one I want to just pause on for a second because I remember covering this at the time. There was there was real significant buzz around your performance in a movie that overall took some flack, but Ryan Murphy's directorial debut, Running With Scissors, in which you're playing the psychotherapist. You were great. Well, you know, that was, I think that was potentially a great movie. And that was, that was Ryan Murphy in his early, you know, in his beginning years. So I, I think Sony uh, was partly responsible for, you know, the, the editorial decisions on that. And they weren't good editorial decisions. And Ryan kind of went along with it. So the film, I, I, there's, there's a time when there should be a real director's cut of that movie. And we can see what the real movie was because it was a pretty di- it was a great experience I mean there's a wonderful scene for example uh, with wonderful Gwyneth uh, Paul, Gwyneth Paltrow because at one point um, in my craziness in my room I sort of dress up as Santa Claus and I'm in my room and I'm going nuts and she climbs on the bed and starts beating me over the face dad dad come and it's very very funny and very accurate and uh, you know it, it was a wonderful movie to work on you know and i was and i was responsible for well actually we did another out of that was because i did a movie later on uh, called the escapist and it was out mm-hmm. of that movie watching uh, joe fines's performance because joe has always been this romantic and he was playing this really crazy guy and he was wonderful and i said and we, we we were doing this film we had tim roth but we lost tim because of the money so we we didn't get it together and joe took over and did a great job yeah so 2006 deadwood you which you've described uh, david milch as probably the most exciting man i've worked with in Hollywood. Uh, that was uh, uh, playing an impresario on that. 2007 Zodiac with Fincher, who is known to do a lot of takes, but gets great stuff out of folks. I don't know if you that was your no, no, <laughs> experience I, I, no, as well. the, No, the, 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 the production, the, the crew thanked me because I got them a day ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was that. Then, uh, as you say, Spike Jones back with him as a, a voice performer in Her in 2013. You'd also done voice in... Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I, you know, I think Bonnie may have been onto something. Not that we don't want to see your face, but your voice is so fantastic. Just separately, I think our listeners are going to be reminded of that listening to this this podcast episode. And then Churchill in 2017, which which was great and brings us up to about the time when I believe you first heard about this project that you initially thought was a one-off limited series Succession. How did you? How were you disabused of that notion? Well, it, it happened quite quickly. You know, I mean, t- my manager had said it's a one-season part. And I said, oh, that's fine. It was in the conversation with Jesse, who is also the other genius, by the way, <laughs> Jesse Armstrong, and and Adam McKay, uh, who's incredible, magnificent talent. And we had this conversation. Adam was in L.A., Jesse was in Italy, I was in London, and we had this conversation, and um, it was a long, long talk about the show, you know, and I w- the show was just pitched to me because there was no script, as there never is with Jesse. You only get the script. If you're very good, you get the script. <laughs> I'm joking, but you know what I mean. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, uh, 
no, you do get the script. It's uh, sometimes a bit late, but anyway. And so we were, so we were, so this, so I got that. It was the pitch. And I just thought, I had this feeling. I thought, wow, this is it. And then I said, in the middle of this conversation, I said, so it's a one season part, yeah? And there was a pause that you could cut with a knife on both sides of the Atlantic. You know, one in Italy and one in, in, my, in Hollywood. And then there was, ah, no, I think it's good. Jesse said, no, I think it's going to be more than one season. <laughs> and, I, and I realized that decision was being made at that moment, that it was going to be more than one season. And I just, That's so funny. And I just thought, you know, when I, I thought this is, you know, I was, you know, I, I, just, I was very disappointed in, not disappointed in the movie, but I, you know, I've done so many movies that suffer from, weak distribution, you know, put out at the wrong time. And and, and my performance as Churchill, I, I'm very proud of. You know, it may yeah, not be the fantastic. greatest movie under the sun, but I'm very proud of it. And I, you know, and I think it deserved more attention than it got. But again, you know, out of sight, out of mind, it came out at the wrong time. So I was kind of feeling the effects of that flack. You know, I'm just feeling, oh, yet again, the same old, same old, you know, that always happens to me. But, you know, not that I'm complaining because I've had a great career and I've loved every minute of it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't change any of it for the world. But then that came and I knew, I said, this is something extraordinary. And I knew that when we did, the, you know, I, I knew that in my gut when I could hear how they were both Adam and Jesse were talking. And then, of course, when we got this and of course, we did the um, it's a famous read through because we did the, we did the read through on the day, that, <laughs> the day that Trump was in August, you know, he got in. You guys thought went after went from the read through and thought you were going to celebrate a Hillary win, right? <laughs> we didn't. It was a very disappointing day, except for the show. And um, mm-hmm. we did the pilot and I had the stroke and and I knew that the character would be remade after the stroke. He was because he's a lion, you know, and he's not going to he's not going to be, you know, he's 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 indomitable. And of course, he's a very so uh, there was so much of myself in relationship to him that because we'd had a life together, he had a life, I had a life, his life was. But then the weirdest thing was when they changed it, because originally the character was Quebec. You know, he came from Quebec. And then in the ninth, you know, I was playing along with that. And then in the ninth episode of the first series, they finally, Peter Freeman says, oh, by the way, they've changed your birthplace. I said, what do you mean they changed my birthplace? He said, where am I born? He said, yeah, well, you're not in Quebec. I said, so, so where am I? He said, oh, I, I can't remember. He said, oh, hey, hang on, I got it here in a, an email. So he looked easy. He said, oh, yeah, somewhere called Dundee, Scotland. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but that's where I'm from. <laughs> now, that was not a coincidence, right? They must have tailored that to you, right? Well, it was Jesse. You know, Jesse, uh, he said, you know, he he's, he's, can be so cryptic, Jesse. You know, and I said to him, I said, so what goes on? He said, oh, we thought it'd be a little surprise. I said, it's a hell of a <laughs> surprise. And you literally got to go home in season two. You literally go there, which was uh, cool. But I guess... You know, one thing I should add, you, you mentioned that you share some things in common with the character. And one of the things you've talked about is that, you know, in trying to understand how this guy became this way, Logan, that you felt that he had sort of had in a way felt abandoned as a child by his parents. Now, your 
dad died, it, it wasn't like he was trying to leave you. Your mother wasn't either. I mean, she had her, her effects of his death. My situation was wholly tragic, but then I, I think his situation was tragic as well because not not I mean he lost his mother and he lost his sister. There's not much talked about his father, and then he went to stage. To, you know, him and his brother went. His brother's older, the character that Jamie plays, Jamie Cromwell plays, and uh, ended up in um, you know in Canada and uh, being abused, and then I've. My backstory was that he would, you know, given that freedom, because Dundee is a big, big newspaper town. Uh, the Thompsons, uh, the DC Thompsons, are these family of people who are. The Courier is one that got the, one of the biggest circulations ever. The Sunday Post, which is the Sunday, it's got a world circulation: Canada, Australia, you know, um, Middle East. I mean, the Far East. I mean, it's huge. And I just, my thing was, oh, he could have been, he could have worked as a, a sub in one of those places, you know, in Dundee at one point. He could have come back to Dundee and worked as a sub. The only thing is, of course, he's a Catholic. And, uh, uh, and that's an interesting dilemma because uh, D.C. Thompson's would never employ Catholics. I was a Catholic. I mean, not that I ever went for a job at D.C. Thompson, but my brother did as a bachelor, and he couldn't even get that job because he was a Catholic, you know, and that was the prejudices of the, t that, the time, the period. So I just thought, you know, it all added up, and the fact that, you know, I, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, the thing about Logan is he's a mystery. You don't know about Logan. You shouldn't know about Logan. I mean, he's still, he's a, he's a revealing story because we don't quite know where he is. You know, and I, I thought, I said to Jesse, I said, does he love his children? And Jesse said, oh, yes, he loves his children. So once you've, that's given, the fact that he does love his children, but the fact that his children are endlessly disappointing, <laughs> to say the least, that makes for the drama, that makes for his the tension in his life. It's all about growing up in the school of hard knocks. And, and, and of course, it's something which is, you know, I, in a minor way, I have the same problem. You know, my kids, they, they don't have the life I had. They don't grow up. <laughs> and so they have no idea and, and little care for the life I've had because they have a certain kind of life. And, of course, the, the Roy children have this thing of entitlement, you know, right. which is, of course, and you see that with the Kushners and the Ivankas, and we see that constantly in that, right? But as I say, the big difference between Trump, between Murdoch, Trump, Conrad Black, and Logan is that Logan is self-made. All, it all starts with Logan. He didn't inherit so, anything. So when people say to you, you know, is this primarily influenced by one of these guys, Murdoch, or primarily Murdoch is the one that comes up. What do you what do you say to that? I say no. I say not at yeah. all. I mean, the, I mean, it's true that Jesse once wrote a thing about Murdoch, and it was a thing that Frank Rich had read and liked. And you know, Frank Rich is the godfather on our show, and he's the one who's sort of really kind of steered it, you know, in a very unsteering way, as Frank does. Jesse had to write a rewrite because he did Veep, and he had to do a rewrite on Veep, which he did in a weekend, which apparently was pretty phenomenal. And Frank was very, very impressed, and suddenly said, "Well, this guy's really got something." And so he asked him, "What you, you know, about his, you know, any things that he had?" And Jesse, of course, is, has a history. He's not a new kid on the block. He's been doing it for you know quite some time. 
So he has the experience. And he did this wonderful series in the UK, which is, I still think is one of the best things ever, which is in the thick of it, you know, which I used to go home and laugh like a drain when I watched it. And he has that sort of, they, him and, and Tony Roach and Lucy Preble and Georgia Pritchard and John Brown, particularly Tony and, uh, and Jesse, come from a kind of comic world. They, they you know, their, their roots are in comedy, you know, but they're, of course they're quite serious because they're quite political, politically minded guys. So that that's just added to wonderful, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very sad, for instance, that um, we just had the Emmy uh, nominations. And I, I was a bit upset that Tony Roach, who wrote The Hunting, which is the famous bore on the floor, yes, didn't get yes. a nomination. But the director did. So, yes. And I kept thinking, you know, I'm really pleased for the director, but... Uh, you ain't got nothing. You ain't got a script. You haven't got a script. Yeah. And that was a hell of a script, you know. And I know you had, yeah, you had said if there was one episode that maybe on paper intimidated you the most, it would have been that, right? It was a very dangerous episode because, yeah. again, you're, you, you're in danger of blowing, uh, blowing, what's his name, out of the water from Logan, you know, and blowing his secrets and making, because he's so volatile in that episode. And even Tony was nervous about it, but he just he just did a beautiful job and it worked like a dream. Well, logistically, as someone who, had, you know, you've done TV, but most of your life has been in the theater or in films, I think it's fair to say. Was it an, an adjustment to be working on something where you don't know where this character is going to end up? Yeah, there's always that. I mean, I got, at first it was, you know, it's like when you get, I like to know what I'm doing, but I have actually known, you know, I mean, like, you know, I met Jesse, just literally just before the lockdown, I met Jesse in London and uh, he said, come and see us. And I went to see him. So he said, so shall I tell you about the next season? I said, no, 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 don't tell me, don't tell me. I mean, I, you know, I said, I, I, I live in the state of, Bliss, not knowing now. I did before. I used to get quite cross, but now I'm <laughs> I'm quite happy. But he did actually tell me about season three, which is wow. astonishing. But I can't tell you because I have to kill you. <laughs> but it's astonishing, and uh, so I. Uh, he was amazing, you know. It, it was amazing. So, yeah, it's just it, it, it's been a wonderful thing to work on, and and, and it yields. It continues to yield, as it, and and you can see that in the show how the show. You know, season one was good, but season two was pretty amazing. Oh, and, epic, and season yeah. three is going to, I think, even top season two. And that's a hard act to follow. So you are nominated in the lead actor in a drama series category for the Emmys this year, alongside your son, Kendall, a.k.a. Jeremy Strong. We had spoken with him a while back. And one of the things that was that really struck me reading up on him and then reading up on you here, you guys couldn't have more different acting styles. This guy like believes that he has to experience every single thing the character does. It sounds like he puts himself through hell, uh, doesn't want to deal with other people. You have been very fun in, in the way that you've described your approach, which was like, you know, this is silliness. You know, you do, you learn your part and you play who you're, you, you know, so I just, I wonder if you could talk about the contrast in styles and if that's ever, yeah. It, it, you know, the, the thing is, it works, you know, the relationship works and, uh, and it kind of that tension sort of adds to the relationship and it kind of, it gives a kind of wonderful context to the relationship. 
I mean, I'm an acting teacher. You know, that's what I do. It's it's my passion as well. About, and I believe that you know, uh, actors have to have the ability to turn on a sixpence, so they can't attach themselves too much so, because they can't remove themselves in a way that sometimes you've got to remove yourself. You've got to be able to switch. You know, working in the theatre teaches you to do that. You know, because the theatre is full of these. You know, especially if you do big comedies in the theatre, you've got to be able to turn on a dime. And Jeremy comes from, you know, that, this American tradition. It's very much the Strasbourg, you know, emotional memory, all of that. I don't really believe in it. You know, that's me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I, it's just me. I mean, I, it's fine. If Jeremy wants to do that, that's, that's Jeremy's <laughs> thing. You know, and that's okay. I yeah. just don't, I, as a teacher, I don't believe in it because I believe you have to be able to keep clear. It's not about you. It's about that, this, you know, there's you, you know, there's you, there's you and there's this. And it's about those two elements. Uh, Isn't it funny though? Because it kind of, it's a, reincarnation of what I understand we had been, you know, we're talking about Marathon Man earlier. That was apparently the debate between Olivier and Hoffman. Try acting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, try acting. And, and, it, right. and it is a debate. You know, it's an ongoing debate. And, you know, and I, you know, and, and then I come back to whatever gets you through the night, you know. You right, know which right, you, right. And it's still, well, I, I, but I see Jeremy put himself through and I say, kid, you know, give yourself a break. You know, <laughs> You know, I, I, I get very, I get very concerned about him because he really, I mean, he's incredibly committed. I have to say. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you can't. There's no. You cannot question his 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 commitment. But I just. Well, you're you're a lot more paternal than uh, than Logan. <laughs> I, I am in that sense because I, I you know, it's, it's something I believe in terms of. Uh, volatility and also you know i i've had my moments like that as a young actor you do get like that but as you get older you you get to see that you need to there are other responsibilities about the totality of what you do not just your character but what you are in 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 relationship to the whole the totality of the whole thing you know uh the great person for that of course is milch you know yeah milch milch gives you such a strong awareness of he demands a lot but you know where you are it's a big picture that you're involved in you know You've been so generous with your time, but I'll wrap it up in two minutes here with just some big picture, just your main takeaways, if that's all right. Logan's smile at the end of the season. After Kendall, just to, you know, spoiler alert, but after Kendall has basically now screwed over his dad, even though he knows his dad has the goods on him, scripted or improvised, and what what does it mean to you? No it's, very, no, it's very clearly scripted. I, I think the smile was scripted. Um, sometimes I never know whether it was or not, but I think it was. Mm-hmm. What it means to me was that uh, it's his son. He's finally come out into the open in terms of his personal avarice and personal need. And also, uh, he's, he's beginning to own something that he hasn't owned before. So in a way, you go, oh, well done. That's uh, that's impressive <laughs> what you've done, even though I am I am I am the object of that, yes. that betrayal. <laughs> I can see that, and then at the other t- and the other element is good. Bring on, let's see what yeah. happens. <laughs> okay, next, um, you have obviously, as we've been talking about, you've been doing this forever and at a high level 
forever. But I would guess that the accolades and the attention that has come from Succession probably trumps anything up to this point. How have you handled it all? You know, I've handled it all because I've just, you know, I've taken it in my stride, really. I mean, it's been very nice. Uh, people are wonderful. You know, people are being so kind and lovely to me. And I also feel that, you know, it's good timing. You know, I mean, I, I really do think it's good timing. And I'm, I mean, I, you know, when you're young, you're so... I had a great mentor called Fulton Mackay, who's... Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a film called uh, Local Hero. Mm-hmm, yeah. Do you know the, the old tramp who owns the beach? You know that one? Was that John Sales or who was that? I don't remember. I know local. Local hero is uh, Bill Forsyth. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and yeah. it's set in Scotland. And yeah. my friend Fulton was a great, great actor. He's long dead, sadly. And he was a great mentor to me. And he kind of, you know, and he used to say, oh, Brian, 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 stop worrying about being a star. You don't have to worry about being a star. Just just say your prayers and be a good actor. <laughs> and, and that was the best advice ever. And it was such a relief. When yeah. he said that to me, I, I thought, yeah, say my prayers and do my job. Right. And, and that was such a wonderful thing. You know, it was like a, it was like a huge weight off my back. Because you are like that. You're driven by ambition and all need and want and all the kind of stuff which is not particularly attractive. And because we're in, it's such an exposed profession, you know, you're, you're, you you can't hide. You're there. You're, poof, it's there. <laughs> so I, I was, I was very, very, I was just very bucked to get that. And it kind of, and I knew as I got older, I'd actually come into my own skin more and I'd be less troubled about things. And I'm not bothered, you know, I mean, I, I'm delighted. I mean, I'm delighted. I'm enjoying every minute of my my accolades. I'm enjoying it all. But it's here today, gone tomorrow. You know, it's right. uh, it, it, I, I can't hold on to it. You know, it's not the be all and end all. Because also I look at the anomalies. I think, why is that person? You know, I look at the Emmys and I said, well, they, they've given that. Well, what about Holly Hunter? Why didn't they give mm-hmm. her any? You know, why don't you go? So I, I just, there's always these anomalies. And, you know, there are always these things that you see. And that's why you can't take it to, you treat it with the respect and the love it deserves, but you can't right. take it seriously. Well, and at least these guys proceeded with their nominations. Who knows what's happened with the Tonys, which you should also be nominated for. I had the great opportunity to see you in October at Lincoln Center in The Great Society. And that, to me, is a slam dunk if they ever get their act together and, and proceed with the with the Tonys. But anyway, that was just another part of your... Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I thought here. everybody had forgotten about that. <laughs> not, a, not at all. All right. Almost done. If you and Rupert Murdoch were to wind up in an elevator together one day, what would you say to him? Uh, well, I wouldn't say anything to him. <laughs> I would right. say, he might I'd have say, something I'd to say. I'd say, oh, hello. <laughs> yeah. I heard you did hear from a member of the family, though. Is that true? Oh, I did. I did. Yeah, I did. Um, it was very nice. Very nice man. He's uh, a, 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 he's an artist himself, but he's also a dealer and he's an agent. And he's married to, well, I'll tell you the story. Okay. Uh, so I'm at a, in my favorite cafe and I have, you know, I live between here and there in the UK, London. So I'm in my favorite cafe in Primrose Hill, ordering my morning latte. 
And I hear this guy behind me says, we're loving, we're, we're not loving, no, he didn't say loving, he said, we're, we're really liking the show, it's, uh, it's a good show, it's a, a tough show, but it's a good show. <laughs> and I turned around and said, oh, thank you. He said, no, no, it's, uh, I, he said, my, um, you know, my, my wife finds it a little hard sometimes watching it. <laughs> I said, oh, I'm, uh, really, why? She said, well, my, I'm married to Elizabeth Murdoch. <laughs> and I went, oh. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. Um, yes. I can imagine. But you know, I said. I said. You, you know, it's a fiction. <laughs> he said it's not real. And, 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 and he said, I, "I know that. I know that." And I couldn't say that to him. I said, "No, no, no." I said, "It's just you know, we're, you know, there's clear connections, but it's not real. Very different. Very different." Said, yeah. And then, great. and then his parting remark was, uh, "Can you? Can you?" Is it all right if you could be nicer to her next season? <laughs> Very good, husband. Uh, that's funny. Well, I can't thank you enough for all of this. And I wonder if I can ask you just to leave us with, if it's not too much of an imposition, just a, a, the closing words, if you don't mind, just the, the quote that people most love hearing you say on succession. So uh, everything given and what we've done now, uh, all I can say to you is just fuck off. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free and leave us a rating on iTunes or your podcast app, as well as on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash awardschatter. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.